You're listening to So Much Pingle, the podcast about herpetology, field herping, and anything and everything about amphibians and reptiles. Join us each week as Mike and his guests explore the amazing world of herps across our planet. And now, bringing a half century of experience and perspective to the microphone, here's your host, Mike Pingleton. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the So Much Pingle Herpetology Podcast. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. And once again, it's good to talk with you all, and uh, I hope everyone remains safe and healthy. And here we go with episode 42. And friends, it's been too long since our last time together. Uh, Now, that's on me because I tied up season one with the Paraguay episode, and then I immediately hightailed it to Mexico for almost three weeks. Uh, And I went down there with a group to the Veracruz area, to which I've never been, and it was awesome. I saw a lot of cool new herps down there, um, including 10 new pit vipers, uh, some very interesting lizards and frogs, and a handful of awesome salamanders. I'm not sure I can pick a favorite find from the trip. Uh, We saw several of the green alligator lizards, Abronia grominius, and those were super cool. And I think as far as serpents go, uh, Crotalus ravis was my favorite. Uh, that's the Mexican pygmy rattlesnake uh, that used to be in the genus uh, Cisturus for a while with the Massasaugas and North American pygmy rattlers. Uh, it's got those large parietal scales on the head. Uh, we saw some and they were real beauties. And uh, I also finally got to see some red-eyed tree frogs, which made me very happy. And uh, also one of those giant plethodontid salamanders that was easily... 10, 11 inches long. Uh, so, so this trip was so much fun. Uh, even at one day uh, where we hiked up this mountain to around 10,000 feet, uh, and I really, really had a hard time breathing up there, but it was still a lot of fun and uh, in, uh, you know, in a gaspy fish-out-of-water sort of way. Well, I did record some material for the show while I was down there for some future episodes, uh, but I did not hit the ground running when I finally got home and got unpacked and got my laundry done. And it's taken some time to get the podcast machinery cranking again, uh, uh, getting interviews scheduled and recorded and getting back in the editing booth and so forth. Uh, But, you know, I'm finally starting to get my groove back here. So uh, before we get to the episode, I want to give a shout out to the show's newest patron, Moses Michelson. Now, Moses supports the show via Patreon, and uh, we first met many years ago at the Pine Hills Campground, which is one of the many places people stay when they come to visit Snake Road in Southern Illinois. And so thank you, Moses, and uh, and thanks once again to everyone who supports the show. Now, the primary channel for supporting the show is Patreon, of course, and if you would like to contribute a few bucks to keep the show rolling, uh, please go to patreon.com slash so much pingle, and so much pingle is all one word. And you can also make one-time contributions via PayPal and Venmo, and you can email me at so muchpingle at gmail.com for directions for doing that. Uh, why does this show need financial support, you ask? Uh, well, there are recurring costs that are associated with any entertainment channel, and, and for this one, it includes things like social media posting platforms and recording and editing software and hardware and, and things like that. And the show really does rely on the kindness of the listening audience. And uh, for that, I am most appreciative. Okay, now for this show, we've got a new feature, Herp Science Sunday with Dr. Alex Crone. 
So for some time now, I've been thinking about a way to incorporate some of the more interesting herpetology papers into the show. And if nothing else, I knew I didn't want to do it myself. So when Alex proposed that we hold a discussion about some of the more interesting papers in the scientific literature as pertained to herps, uh, I was just ecstatic. Uh, this is exactly what I was aiming for. Um uh, for this show, you get the point of view from Alex, an actual scientist, a herpetologist, and you get my decidedly non-scientific but interested layperson take on it as well. So I was really excited to have a chat with Alex over the 4th of July holiday, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. So let's get to the very first Herp Science Sunday episode. Well, good morning, everyone. I want to welcome you. <laughs> I haven't talked. I haven't talked for a while. Uh, well, good morning, everyone, and uh, I want to welcome you to Herp Science Sunday, and it is indeed Sunday, and uh, I want to welcome Dr. Alex Crone to the microphone. Alex, hi everyone. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Mike. It's uh, Sunday morning, July fourth, and uh, we're kicking off uh, a new feature that uh, I, I hope our listeners enjoy and will hopefully will be something we do on a regular basis. So, so I want to, Alex, why don't you tell us a little bit about how this whole thing came to pass? Sure. Um, I'd say it was kind of a, a mutual idea that um, we came up together. I shot Mike an email saying like, oh man, look at all these cool papers that are coming out. Wouldn't it be fun to kind of summarize some of the exciting uh, herp-related literature that um, that the audience of So Much Pingle uh, would find interesting and go over it in a kind of conversational, um, scientific, but but also lighthearted and accessible way with everyone. And so um, I presented that idea to Mike. Mike said, cool, yeah, that sounds great. And um, yeah, we, we chose a few uh, papers that uh, we thought would be interesting for this first session. And like you said, Mike, yeah, hopefully we can continue to do this uh, again and again. Yeah. And, and um, before you emailed me, uh, I had for some time I've been thinking about how how do I get some of these really cool uh, publications? How do I get them to my reader's attention without it just being uh, me reading, you know, um, me droning on about it, um, which is no fun at all. Uh, I do enough droning on uh, about other things. So, how do I get that that information out to the into the you know listening audience in, in a way that makes sense? And so, when I saw your email, I'm like, yes, this is perfect. This is exactly this is exactly what I want. Um, and I think, um, and, and personally. Um, I, I don't know how you feel about this, Alex, but I'm I'm kind of starved for discussions about about herps in in depth. You know, I agree. And these papers provide an opportunity to uh, get into you know, amphibians and reptiles in a deeper, more meaningful way. Um, since you know we live. Uh, quite a, a nine, 10 hours apart. And we, you know, we can't uh, spend uh, eight hours road cruising or have other opportunities to, to do this. So I, I thought this is, this is perfect vehicle for us to have uh, a conversation about some of these, these cool things that are happening. 
I totally agree. I have been separate from the academic herp world for a little while now and um, have gotten really excited when some kind of big thinkers in herpetology start these long discussions on Facebook. And, and it's been fun to just hear smart folks talk about uh, topics that I'm interested in in herpetology, down from like what gets rat snakes moving at night to like bigger questions and how do we name subspecies and all of that. Like that, that's really interesting to me. And yeah, I think the more avenues that um, we have kind of good discussion about, about recent literature is the better in my mind. Yeah. When you bring up, uh, uh, I was in Mexico a few weeks ago uh, for almost three weeks and uh, somebody, uh, I, David Hillison and Justin Michaels uh, kind of built on it that they they started these discussions about uh, North American rat snakes and there were some interesting range maps being thrown around, some interesting discussions. And I'm in Mexico with uh, uh, you know two G, one bar two G, and I I can't follow the discussion. So I was kind yeah. of like, no, <laughs> yeah, it's fun. It's really fun when when smart people start going at it and start. Um, yeah, kind of shooting off the cuff as well, like just saying, this is what I think. This is what it looks like to me. I think that that's really interesting and it gets my gears turning a bit. So maybe we can do that for some other people as well. Yeah. Uh, it, something else comes to mind. I remember back in your your uh, pre-doctorate days when you were at Berkeley and uh, didn't you have sort of uh, like a, you guys would go to a pub or uh, wasn't there something like like a herpetology salon that would take place at a pub and you guys would all get together <laughs> and have beers and talk about herpetology? Yeah, it wasn't even um so I think what you're referring to there is herp group at um that is based at UC Berkeley at the Museum of Vertebrate Zoology and oh, I hope I don't mess this up, but if I believe they just celebrated their 50th uh anniversary the 50th meeting of herp group so this is a long-standing tradition and they're probably on like 53 now but um they yeah so basically every i think it's the first monday of the month anyone who's interested in herpetology who can make it to berkeley at like 6 37 p.m can come out there's a um a speaker that kind of headlines the night and that might be a researcher at UC Berkeley, or it might be someone else that um, that they've flown in or who's driven in. And yeah, we, we talk about herpetology and it's really, really fun because you get people like Dave and Marvely Wake, like Jim McGuire, and um, they, they all like some of the, the smartest minds in herpetology come and just talk over beers about this weird new paper that came out or this really interesting person's research and anyone is invited. So you get people um, from, from the Cal States, you get people who are interested in it from a field herping perspective or maybe consulting biologists plus the, the academic types. And, um, and yeah, so it, it's open and it's just a fun laid back way to, to talk about herpetology and Similar to this, it always starts with a literature review. So anyone who um, anyone who comes is uh, invited to bring uh, recent literature that they've 
scene that, that they think the group will be interested in. They give like a one sentence summary and then kind of pass the paper around. Um, and in that way, we all get caught up on what uh, what's being published and what other people think are interesting. And then um, we, we go into the, the main event. It's a, it's a fun cool. tradition. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So jealous. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're ever there on the first Monday of a month, um, I can I can let you know. We can get you on the email list. It is easy to do. That would be fun. And of course, I think other people are interested in it. Of course, you know, you are a scientist, but I am not a scientist. Uh, I still enjoy talking about herpetology in, in, at, at deeper levels and natural history and things like that. I'm never going to completely understand a lot of the science in, in papers. I'm not going to understand some of the math uh, that gets used. I'm never going to understand all of the genetic work. Uh, there's, it's just uh, very complex, and, and I think there's plenty of scientists who who also might have a hard time following some of that because this is a very complex subject, and um, uh, it's always changing and always moving. Uh, the, the goalposts are always moving when it comes to genetics. So, I, I will say as well, genetics I know a bit more. That That's my kind of specialty, but, um, but yeah, I... Even as a scientist, as someone with a PhD, I have a very narrow realm of expertise. And so there's a lot that, that's outside my realm as well. But um, yeah, together, hopefully we can, we can break some of it down and at least show people what, what we think is really cool and exciting about it, even if we can't, um, can't derive their equation for carrying capacity or, or whatever it is. That's the one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's one of many I don't quite under understand, but that's okay. <laughs> well, why don't we start with this first uh, the paper that you brought to my attention, uh, which was uh, from the uh, journal Ecology. You want to talk about that one first? Sure, yeah. So uh, this paper, uh, which was written by um, some folks at the University of South Florida and at uh, Macari University, I think that's how you say it, in Sydney. Uh, and some other people in, in Australia is called the Ecosystem Engineering by Deep Nesting Monitor Lizards. And it's just a really short scientific note in the journal Ecology, which we can get into later, but it's, it's just a really cool format to publish your awesome scientific observations, your natural history observations in a high impact journal. So that's cool for other reasons. But um, basically, these folks have been studying uh, two monitor species, Varanus panoptes, the yellow spotted monitor, and Varanus uh, gouldi, Gould's monitor, and kind of both in um, across the northern uh, areas of of Australia. So we're talking like savannas and and tropical ecosystems as well, and into the desert, especially with Gould's monitor, and. Specifically, they've been studying them for a number of years, but in this paper, they just kind of talk and describe uh, the burrow systems that both of these species make, specifically yellow spotted monitors. And they just by digging into these and excavating these burrow systems, they found some really cool stuff. They excavated uh, 16 burrows from Varanus panoptes, which is not that many. I'll, we'll just say that right there. 
but they found, uh, let me find the actual numbers here. I had them all pulled up. They found over 700 individual vertebrates, just vertebrates that were using these burrows of 28 species. And um, I think you should put, you should put the, the picture from the paper up um, uh, when, when you publish this podcast, Mike, because the image is just amazing in how they mapped out these burrows. And basically, they're these helical burrows that descend down into the sand up to four meters, which they claim is the deepest burrow of any vertebrate, which is pretty cool in and of itself. But they have these nesting burrows and um, just excavated burrows or, or foraging burrows, and they're all kind of right next to each other. And as they fall into disarray, they all get kind of connected together. And they uh, call Varanus panoptes a an ecosystem engineer because of the way that they turn over the soil and because of the amount of species, the number of species that use these subterranean warrens, these connected burrows to, for everything, to escape the heat, to increase their moisture, to um, for amphibians, yeah, to, to uh, estivate in, for uh, lots of different lizards to lay their eggs in. It's, it's really incredible. And yeah, just it, it was a cool paper in its short description and in the number of questions that it brought up as well. It kind of made me start thinking of these like uh, large monitors, like I, I think they get up to like 10, 11 feet long, um, these large monitors as the kind of prairie dogs of Northern Australia. It was, it was cool. Yeah, well, the, uh, the, the uh, principal monitor in the study, Panoptes, is uh, reaches it says 1.4 meters so about four ah. and a half feet but okay. still that's a, was, that's a big lizard i was way off but yeah definitely a big lizard bigger than our prairie dogs as well right uh and, and i you brought up the the ecosystem engineer concept because most everybody out there is familiar the most familiar ecosystem engineer for folks is is the beaver right that's the one to have because it's very what it, the beaver does is very visual, right? It's a very visual impact upon the landscape, and uh, of course, prairie dogs. You mentioned prairie dogs, which is another one. Uh, but in, in terms of reptiles, uh, reptiles. There's a few reptiles that can serve as uh, ec ecosystem engineers, and uh, gopher tortoises is uh, a big one. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, now we can add monitors to that list. And desert tortoises out in the desert as well. Very similar yeah, to, yeah. to gopher tortoises and how a ton of other species use their burrows. And yeah. You also brought up the, uh, the fact that the burrows, and, and I will publish an illustration from this paper because it's very cool, but the illustration shows these, these corkscrew-shaped burrows. And, and four meters is, that's, you know, 12, 13 feet or so. So yeah. these corkscrew-shaped burrows that go down to a resting cavity or a nesting cavity, if you will, places where they can lay their eggs and, and just, uh, like you say, estivate from the heat and spend the winter and whatnot. But, uh, of course, the first question that I'm sure everybody has is, why, why the helical shape? What's going on there? I thought of that, too. I, I didn't, um, yeah, when I think of, of desert tortoise burrows or gopher tortoises, like, Maybe they go straight down and then curve at the end or even badgers and coyotes, like all the, the burrows that I've seen here in the United States, 
have been pretty straightforward, like get it straightforward. Just they go, they go straight down, maybe they curve and, and that's about it. So that corkscrew pattern was just so cool. And I have no idea why. I wonder if there's, um, uh, something about how air travels down the helix. Maybe it is like, it gets really, really hot in Northern Australia. I, I wonder if it traps moisture better or if that is a easier way to get that temperature gradient change from outside to inside if you've got this helical nature. I don't know, maybe even, and this is 100% um, speculation, maybe uh, Varanid monitors are like right-handed or left-handed. And so they've got one arm that's like stronger. And if they dig down, they can't dig like like straight down. They just end up going in a circle because one arm is stronger than the other. I, I doubt that that's <laughs> true, but... Maybe I, I have no idea. You know, it it comes to mind. It comes <laughs> to mind, doesn't it? Um, yeah. That then the question is: Are all the bur do all the burrows go the same direction? Are they right. are they all clockwise? Are they all counterclockwise? And I don't recall the paper saying. I didn't see that either. Uh, and of course, there's a couple other papers associated with this. And of course, one of my other question was: How the heck would, would you excavate this burrow? In order to discover this, the helical nature of oh, yeah. the tunnel. Is it a tunnel? I, it's, it's a burrow, I guess. A tunnel is a human thing. Right, I guess. Um, yeah, and it's just an astounding amount of work. Like anyone, if you've worked, so I worked for a little while as a desert tortoise biologist in uh, the Mojave Desert. And when there's big development in, um, in the desert, they often they'll fence off the area to protect it, to prevent desert tortoises from moving into the area where the construction will be. And then the biologists have the grueling task of basically clearing that area of any desert tortoises that live there. And that means that we have to dig out any burrow that's bigger than maybe like a half dollar, because that's how big juvenile or baby desert tortoises are. And so we have to dig out every kangaroo rat burrow, every mouse burrow, every desert tortoise burrow. And it, it just is a lot of work because you have to go so painstakingly slow to not accidentally crush whatever is living in there. And those are just mostly straight burrows. Maybe they curve or wiggle a little bit, but they're not like helical straight down into the earth, certainly not four meters deep into the earth. And so it takes a lot of time. And you you go really slowly, kind of like sticking something into the burrow to prevent it from collapsing down and then removing what uh, the sand that's on top and, and you just keep keep on going. Um, and I can tell you, it takes a ton of time. And so to to dig out uh, some of these burrows that they that are, are really dense, um, they yeah, these, these warrens extend for like 120 square meters with like basically one burrow system right on top of each other. It's, it's an extraordinary amount of work. And so when we say like, oh, they only dug up 16, like that, that's a lot. That is a lot of work already. Well, the, the whole idea of, it's one thing to dig a hole in the ground, but the dirt's got to go somewhere. Uh, right. And the, the farther down you go, the more dirt you end up moving and the farther you end up moving it. So, uh, so these lizards are burning uh, a, uh, a lot of calories, I imagine, to 
construct these these helical structures and then the nest cavities at the bottom. That dirt's got to go somewhere. Uh, so it, it it's like well, it take it burned. And I always think about calories, you know. So yeah. it, they burn a lot of calories and they spend a lot of time doing this. So there must be some tremendous benefit. Of course, we don't have all the answers for that. Well, obviously, protecting the nest uh, is is one aspect of it. But I'm I'm also wondering about the the, the helical shape because you 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 go down in the ground so far, uh, you, you you start to get down where the the soil is not dry and hot. It's it's cool and perhaps the humidity is higher. So maybe definitely a helical shape helps to trap or, or slow down the release of that uh, that moisture because I imagine that a um, you know a straightforward tunnel is just basically providing a, a, an exit for right humidity. Totally. And you brought up another point where what you said uh, made me think about uh, parking structures as well. And like uh, like parking garages, the stairs to go or it's not stairs, the ramp to drive your car up is also a helix to go up. And I wonder if there's maybe something about the stability of it, that if you're going to go four meters underground, maybe a, a, a sloping tunnel, like you say, maybe doesn't catch the humidity. And maybe it's just not as stable uh, as as a four as as a helix going down into the ground. And so I don't know the total speculation, but um, yeah, maybe maybe there's something about the physics of uh, a helix going down into the ground versus just a straight line. Yeah, well, that's a good point. And of course, as you mentioned, these 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 burrows. And these warrens, I had to look up the term warren because I wasn't quite sure how to use it. But I, I guess a warren is just a collection of burrows. I think so, yeah. But but they, they hold all these other organisms that provide humidity and, and safety. And uh, it turns out that uh, the, the monitors themselves will use these uh, egg-laying chambers communally. So you'll have more than one monitor using that. So no, it's not every single... A lizard, or probably, I guess, I don't even know if it's the females or males who dig the, the nest. That's a very good question to find out. Uh, but not every not every lizard digs a, a burrow. Uh, right. Which makes sense to me. It's like, well, you know, in terms of saving calories, uh, it just makes more sense to use, you know, a, make it a communal nest area. That way not every lizard is, you know, burning themselves out digging a, this massive structure. And then, of course, that gets into all the questions of, sociality and how much they know and whose burrows are they using and um is yeah are are other nesting individuals offering protection of some kind like there yeah it opens up so many questions and yeah like you said it's not just monitors that are using these uh these warrens either they found over a hundred clutches of different species different lizards eggs in uh, a 16 square meter area. And so lots of geckos, lots of skinks, um, I think even some snakes were using the, the moist, um, loose soil that these monitors had, had excavated to lay their eggs. And that, that's pretty cool as well, that like you, you follow the monitors and you'll find all sorts of other species um, that are kind of riding the coattails, that, that idea of the, ecosystem engineer well it also you know the paper describes these lizards as ecosystem engineers which is a 
a, a type of uh, an ecological description descriptor. But a couple other ones come up in in the course of this, and the other uh, other one that comes to mind right away is the uh, umbrella species. Yep. Um, and which I had to look up because I, I want to make sure I understood what they meant by it. But these monitors, because they dig these burrows, they provide habitat and other resources for other species. So yep. know, So they sort of they're the umbrella over a bunch of different species in terms of their reproductive success, uh, escape from predators, that, that sort of thing. Sure. Yeah, you could you could make that argument. I think generally umbrella species are, are used more in um, the context of conservation. Like if we're going to, like this species acts as an umbrella, because if we conserve this one species, we end up protecting all of these other species. And you could make that argument, yeah, for protecting um Varanus panoptes uh, or yellow spotted monitors, and but in the same way you could also say something like um, like a giant panda is an umbrella species, where the the individual species like I'm not sure if a bamboo eating bear is like the the one species that every other species depends on, um, like a like a keystone species or or an ecosystem engineer, um, but by protecting uh, giant pandas. We also protect all of the other species that use those deciduous forests in Sichuan, and so they become an umbrella for conservation in in the area. I see. And and you bring up an, you brought up another term, uh, keystone species. Sure. Uh, which yeah. these monitors are also keystone species, and the idea is that the you know sort of like the uh, I picture a stone arch. Uh, and there's, you know, when you build a stone arch, the last thing you put in place is the keystone, and that holds the two s- sides of the arch together in, in the center, right? It, it, it's exactly. The where the opposing forces meet. So in terms of ecology, the keystone species is, if you remove that species, all of the stones fall, so to speak. Right. All of this, a lot of other species collapse as well, so. Right. And so that would be, if we really wanted to call them keystone species, and that, I think that's part of the reason they don't call um, the yellow spotted monitor a keystone species, because in order to call it that, you'd have to do that test. You'd have to somehow figure out whether the removal of this species will negatively impa- impact a whole bunch of other species um, or, or just impact in general uh, a whole bunch of other species. It seems like it could be. It's a, it's a candidate for sure. But there are some really famous ecological examples of keystone species like uh, predatory starfish that come and eat anemone or eat uh, barnacles and in the tide pools. And if you throw away, um, if you if you remove those starfish from the tide pools, then uh, other anemones and urchins and and barnacles take over. And so it it, um, that was was really strong evidence that those starfish were the the, the keystone species in those tide pools. Other examples are um, wolves. Often predators have this kind of disproportionately large effect on the other species in the ecosystem. And those are, are yeah, again, good candidates for, for keystone species. But yeah, these, these, the three definitions that we just brought up, they're kind of, um, I would say that there's fuzzy lines between all of them. And you could, you could make an argument for one or the other as long as you're you're, you've got good evidence backing up your claims. 
Well, there's no argument about the ecosystem engineer label. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. And it also brings up uh, the conservation uh, implications of, of their, their studies. So yellow spotted monitors have been really negatively affected by cane toads in, uh, in Australia. And they're obviously, uh, well, one of the big problems with cane toads in Australia is that uh, species that eat toads will try to eat these cane toads and die or at least be sickened by uh, their toxins. And apparently um, yellow spotted monitors have disappeared over uh, across 90% or either 90% of their range or they suffered a 90% um, decline in population size uh, due to cane toads. And so the authors surmise that um, because they, so many other species depend on their burrows, if they decline in numbers, this could have, um, like we were saying, this, this disproportionate or cascading effect on other species in the Australian bush. And if that's true, then yeah, they could be that, that keystone species. Um, that's something that, that people would have to study kind of following the decline of yellow spotted monitors after cane toads. I think I, I've read somewhere that they, uh, the remaining monitors, species of monitors maybe are coming back because they've, they've sort of selected for behaviors that uh, they, they, they leave the cane toads alone or they figured out how to eat them without, without becoming an, uh, poisoned by the uh, bufotoxin? Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's incredible. Evolution, when you've got really, really strong selection like that, like you eat it, you die. The only ones who survive are going to be the ones who happen to not eat the toads or um, to, to avoid the toads or learn how to eat the toads without dying or maybe um, some resistance evolves in the population. And yeah, I, I saw some of those studies. I can't recall them off the, the top of my head, but, um, but evolution is working really rapidly. And, uh, and, and this seems to be a common thread that, that when, so that sometimes so when selection is so, so strong, if there is, if there are survivors, um, they can come back and, uh, and repopulate. Uh, but again, a lot of things have to be, uh, true for that to happen, right? Like those behaviors or, um, that, that resistance to bufo toxin has to be genetically inherited. Selection can't be so strong that it just kills everything, right? Some things have to survive. And, um, but yeah, that, that's happening, um, with cane toads. It's happening, um, even with, uh, uh, amphibians that are susceptible to chytrid. Some species have yeah. a few populations or individuals that are surviving. And, and it's really remarkable just how quickly evolution can act. Yeah. Right. Almost in front of our eyes, almost. Exactly. There's one other thing about this. Uh, we talk, you know, this helical burrows. Another interesting fact about this is that when the, you know, they, they lay their eggs at the bottom of these burrow systems in a nest chamber, and then the young hatch, but the young don't use the helical burrow system at all. Yeah, that is they, just another they dig straight up. Right, they, they go straight. Yeah, they've got this lovely like path out to the open, but for some reason... They just dig straight up. I don't, yeah, that is a noggin scratcher. I don't know if that's like maybe some innate thing that like a, a lot of lizards bury their eggs. And um, so maybe there's some like innate 
programmed behavior that um, baby lizards have to dig straight up. And so even though there's a path out, it's in their brain to just, you know, when I'm born, I dig straight up. Or who knows, maybe this is something that um, someone like Emily Taylor could answer, but maybe if what you were saying is true, that those helical burrows like trap the moisture better um, down, down in that nesting chamber, maybe as the um, babies come out, that changes the airflow a little bit and like triggers the others to hatch or um, I, I don't know, like makes, yeah, changes the airflow and the humidity such that it, it allows others to come out more easily or know where the exit is. Like, I really, I have no idea why they dig straight up, but it is, that's an interesting fact. I was wondering this morning, uh, again, that perhaps, perhaps that's a predator avoidance mechanism as well. Interesting. Uh, because, it, it, you know, other adult monitors and other predators could be, you know, just hanging around uh, in the helical burrow or at the mouth of the burrow waiting for these uh, uh, hatchlings to come out. So maybe if you're, you come out three foot away at night by, you know, digging your own hole, uh, maybe you, you start off with a little better chance. I, I don't know, but I, I, you know that that occurred to me that maybe that's one of the reasons why. Yeah, another testable hypothesis. Like that, <laughs> I, I was looking up um, what the journal Ecology was looking for when they post these natural history notes, and they're particularly looking for observations that spur more questions. That. Um, in the hopes that, that we put this out there and then, yeah, someone will test that. Like you could, like I was saying, you could, you could put, uh, humidity gauges and wind gauges down in the nesting burrow and see how things change as they hatch, as new, um, new tunnels are, are dug. You could put camera traps out, uh, at the, the entrance to the burrows and, and look to see if predators are waiting or if predation rates are higher, if you kind of like, block the ability of juveniles to dig up that way it would be yeah there's just so many questions uh to ask in this system it's really really cool yeah yeah and it just made me think of uh, i talked with uh, savannah weaver well it's a couple months ago now uh and they're doing all this uh, telemetry work down in burrows just trying to you know they're not even looking at the activity of the lizards they're just trying to understand the dynamics of what's happening in a burrow yeah. What te- what are the temperature ranges? What are the humidity ranges? Uh, and how do those compare to what's happening at the surface? Well, you know, just using this basic data logger system to grab a bunch, well, a bunch of data <laughs> to totally. try to figure out uh, what the relationship is between the bur- the deep down in the burrow and what's happening on the surface. Yeah, I I bet Savannah's wheels are turning on this paper because it it seems <laughs> it seems like a lot of the same questions. Uh, could be asked here, and I don't know that all the answers would be the same. It's it's pretty cool. Is there anything else about this paper that that you know tickles your fancy or strikes you as very interesting? Um, I mean, yeah, I I, I guess I, I'm really excited for all of your listeners to see the picture of these burrows. Just the like the sheer number and complexity of them was really awe inspiring. And then I guess the other thing, and, and maybe this will just be a recurring theme uh, about things that, that get me excited, was just that this is a cool way for field herpers and people who are out looking at herps all the time in nature to, to publish these really 
awe-inspiring or exciting uh, findings. Like all you need to have is a photograph of the behavior or some sort of um, uh, digital representation of the behavior or activity or, or whatever that, that you're noticing. And if you document it in a really um, rigorous way and then can kind of situate it by saying like, okay, this is what people found before. This is why my observation is really interesting. And if your observation spurs a whole slew of other questions, like get it out there, publish. You could get published in the, the journal Ecology, which is crazy. And, um, and, and that's awesome. Like, like the value of natural history observations is not, is not lost in these big journals. People recognize that these observations are the, the foundation of really good science. And yeah, if they, if they, if these observations stay on your hard drive or on your SD card or in your field notebook, then, uh, they they might just die there and and that would be tragic it would be we we should get these interesting observations out to the world and this is one way that that you can do that in a citable searchable way <laughs> yes and, and i think uh some the some of the authors on this paper are, are have some written some other associate associated work uh and are doing further research on 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 this whole uh helical burrow phenomena uh, issue yeah. i don't know what he was uh, I don't know what the correct word is, but it, it the fact that the illustrate and folks will see this in the show notes, but the, the illustration doesn't just show a helical burrow. It shows like a, a map, a three-dimensional map, uh, so many meters square. It's actually a cube, and it, it shows right. all of the all of the helical burrows together. And I, I'm thinking, how did they? I need to find other papers so I can uh, that were written about this so I can understand how they map those. Did they yeah. use some sort of? Did they use some sort of ground penetrating radar? Or how how do you how do you do that? Because that seems interesting to me. You you couldn't. It's one thing to excavate one helical burrow, but to take a, a plot, you know, twenty meters or whatever it is, square, and map all of the burrows in that area accurately. How do you how do you do that? Yeah, you can't, I, you can't dig those up. There's not enough teaspoons in the world, you know. <laughs> right, you'd be there for years. And um, and yeah, they're just all connected with each other and they were able to label them like active or inactive. I wonder, you you raise a good point, ground penetrating radar or some other technology that, that I'm not aware of uh, would make that job a lot easier and probably make it more precise as well. Yeah. Well, very good. I think we've given this one a, a good... Going over, I think we've we've sh sure. shook it in our teeth enough. Uh, we have a little time left, so I thought we have a, another paper to talk about. Uh, and I thought uh, I'm switching my notes now. I'm bringing up that paper. This one is also a uh, natural history oriented observations, and this one comes from the. And of course, I want to say the last paper that we talked about it, it was published this year. So right. we are right now we're talking about recent papers. That one was published earlier this year as as well as this paper we're going to talk about now which is published in the Journal of Herpetology and you want to lead us into that? Sure. Um so this one comes from Nancy Carricker's lab, University of Rhode Island. There's a bunch of people on it. Um and it, the title is Confirmation Bias Perpetuates Centrally Century-old ecological mi misconception. Wow, I need my coffee too. 
evidence against secretive behavior of Eastern spadefoots. And this, yeah, like you said, Mike, this is the most recent issue of the Journal of Herpetology and is just a really cool paper, um, basically overturning the idea that Eastern spadefoots, um, or I, yeah, they call them Eastern spadefoots. I like Eastern spade feet, but either way, um, overturning the idea that these are secretive and hard to find species. And um, maybe you can speak to this more than I can, Mike, because I still have not seen an Eastern spadefoot. I've seen plenty in the desert, um, but sure, just like the, the desert species, most people uh, on the East Coast tend to study Eastern spadefoots during these uh, explosive breeding events. And uh, that, that's happened for, for many, many years. And the, that, the result of that is that you only really get a, a small slice of the biology of Eastern spadefoots. You only get the breeding adults and maybe the juveniles that, that come later, but these non-breeding subadults, as they call them, are, are pretty much totally missed. And anyway, this, they come up with a new way of looking for spadefoot toads using eye shine to survey them when it's not raining, when they're not breeding, and they just kind of blow the lid off this idea that they are secretive and hard to find. The results are, are amazing and astounding. They find more than 2,000 spadefoots in, uh, outside of the breeding season and are finding them when it's not raining out at a rate of, on average, one spadefoot per every 7 to 21 meters that someone walks. Like, that, that's crazy, and that, that's really high for not in the breeding season when it's not raining, just on a regular old uh, summer, spring or summer evening. Um, so there, there's a lot to unpack in there, but it was just a cool yeah. study. Well, my first spade foot, spade feet, uh, came after a catastrophic rain event. Uh, right. It rained like three straight days over in uh, western Indiana, and I went over there with some buddies and uh, flooded farm field, and the spade foots that it just got done calling. They were still hanging around a bit, so I got quite a, saw quite a few that way. And I have also stumbled on a few eastern spadefoots over the years here and there, usually at night, walking trails and whatnot. Uh, but the, the you know the general consent or not consensus, but the general thought that people have about you know spadefoots of any kind is well, you know, they spend a lot of time underground, right? Uh, and of course, you know the western species of, of spade feet. I'm, I'm going to use that. Uh, the Western <laughs> species of spade feet, you know, your, uh, you know, uh, which are the genus uh, Scaphiopus and uh, Spea. Right. Or Spea. Is it Spea or Spea? I, I always say Spea, <laughs> but I, okay. you could make any one work, at least in the U.S. Sure. Uh, so they have their own, their own little family, right? They're Scaphiopidae. They've been bounced around a number of different families. They were lumped in with the European palabatids, which are related. They're, you know, there's this group of uh, little, and I call them toads because they're terrestrial animals for the most part. And they do have little paratoid glands. Or, so I, I do kind of think of them as toads, but they're not really the true toad like we have, uh, the, the bouffonets. But, uh, right. but anyway, they... they, they they estivate, the ones in the desert, they estivate during the summer so you don't see them much until it rains. And then they come out and they're in every ditch. And then they spend the winter underground as well. And, and so I think 
there's a, a bit of transference there uh, for what we call the Eastern Spadefoot, right? Which is a, a Scaphiophus uh, Holbrookie. And uh, so I think that that just kind of transferred over. Well, you know, I don't really see those, so they must be uh, hard to find. They must right. be underground a lot. But, you know, thinking about this in hindsight, it's like you know, these are active animals that they have caloric needs. They have to come out and they have to forage. They have to find yep. food. They can't be underground all the time. They can't be underground every night. They've got to come up. They've got to eat. And, you know, it's just this idea that, well, they're hard to find. Yeah. Uh, so this paper gives a, a new method for finding them, which turns out to be extremely successful, you know. And the, uh, yeah, go, ahead. go ahead, Mike. Oh, all right. Um, yeah, I was just going to say they, they put some interesting citations in there that I made me think, like, I wasn't really sure what came first, whether they decided to go eye shining or whether they read these papers and were like, hmm, something's up with, I, I bet spade feet are more common than we believe. Or they went eye shining, found them, and um, and and then looked back at the literature and were like, oh wait, oh duh, people have been saying this. But like you like you're saying, people have looked in the the guts of done diet studies of eastern spadefoot and found that um, they eat mostly terrestrial arthropods, meaning that like they have to come up uh, above ground to to eat these things. And that the males and females are are uh, maintain breeding condition throughout the year, meaning that they they seem like they're kind of ready to go at any time. It doesn't seem like like what happens out west, where they just get triggered by these monsoon rain events and then come up. It seems like these things, yeah, really should be active all year round. Yeah, and this is where it gets kind of embarrassing for me because, as you and Everybody who listens to the show know I spend uh, a few weeks every year down in Peru. And uh, one of the things we do at night when we walk trails in the marine forest at night is you hold a flashlight up next to your head. And as you, you know, or you have a headlamp and it's, you know, close to your eyes. And so you kind of scan the, the forest for eye shine. Totally. Right? I use this technique all the time. In Peru, and I'm reading this paper. I'm like, why? Why haven't you used this? Uh, yeah, you know, why haven't I done this technique locally here in the Midwest? I can't wait to try it now because, yeah, it is. It's just so obvious. I didn't think of it either. We do it even uh, when I lived in California um, on rainy winter nights. We would go out spotlighting for salamanders, and and it's mind blowing. It's just so cool to see salamanders out doing what they're doing, like Encetina climbing trees or chasing uh, males, chasing down females and, and following uh, pheromone trails. It's, it's amazing, but I would never think to do it on uh, like a dry night on the East Coast. That didn't, didn't enter into my, my brain. And yeah, it's that, that confirmation bias. If no one has done it before you, you and people just say they're they're secretive they're hard to find like you don't go looking on a on a dry night for amphibians yeah yeah and so i'm i'm thinking what other amphibians could i find that i i use like for example we you know i've done a show on snoring thunder and we go out on rainy nights when these these goofy frogs are out on the on the roads and right in the ponds and 
we do that. And then uh, I also look for uh, Sudacris illinoensis, the Illinois chorus frog. Same way. Right. You know, you read the literature and, and you read the, the common accounts and says this, you know, this species spends most of its time burrowed underground. Well, that may not be quite true either. I mean, the, the assumption, I think maybe people take that assumption too far that they're always underground. Well, no, they've got to be out, you know, foraging. So why am I not looking for these things? Uh, yeah. Well, even on a rainy night, say in August, uh, it's, it's outside their breeding period, but they should be out. Uh, I should go, I should go look for them. So right. maybe they're moving <laughs> in between areas or, or trying to disperse or, or who knows what, just coming up for a snack. Like, it's something that I'm going to, well, yeah, like not only the eye shine as something that's interesting and something worth trying, but just this idea that you use your brain, you use the, what you know about the species biology and not necessarily taken, taking what's in a field guide or, or what's been published as, as, as golden as the only thing that's known about this species. Like, yeah, give it a shot. Yeah, because they don't read field guides. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, just to back things up a little bit, uh, you use the term confirmation bias, which is in the sure. paper. What What does confirmation bias mean? Oh, Somebody boy. out there I, is going, what, is, what does that mean? Sure. I can give you kind of my definition, but I bet we should sure. probably Google this and, and actually look it up. But it's essentially... This idea, it, it, it's like a, a self-perpetuating uh, bias, basically, that I say spadefoot, uh, eastern spadefoots are rare and are hard to find. And then Mike says, like, oh, yeah, I heard from, from this doctor that spadefoot toads are, are hard to find. And then you tell someone and someone else tells someone and, and it just becomes gospel that because one person, maybe I confirmed it, you didn't really ask, but because one person confirmed it, everyone else believes that it's true, and and that gets kind of perpetuated down the line. Um, because they also never find them. Right, exactly. And then, yeah, again, people only go out looking for spadefoot toads during explosive breeding events, and so they say they only come out during explosive breeding events. And so, but if no one really looks hard outside of that, you can't, that's just, the confirmation bias. We found them here at this time, thus that this must be the only time that they're, that they're present. And I guarantee you there are, there are one or more people listening to this show who are like, oh yeah, yeah, I find them all the time with a flashlight. Right. Da, da, da. But, and there are personal experiences, there are anecdotal experiences. Don't crack the bias because maybe they're not a scientist. They don't publish it or Maybe they never talked to a herpetologist about it, never, a subject that never came up. And so they right. may be carrying around this, nu this nugget uh, of knowledge, but it doesn't come up and it doesn't work against this, this bias. And that's super important. I mean, that's another reason to bring this up on your show, because, for example, eastern state feet are protected and are rare in, in some states along the East Coast. And the biologists that make the decisions about those species are making them based on uh, literature that's published on, on species accounts that are, that are published. And so if those biologists don't know your secret awesome way to find spadefoot toads, they're going to think that they're, that, that confirmation bias is going to be perpetuated. And so, yeah, if you, 
if you have an awesome way to find some rare species and um, and can publish that information in a way, obviously that doesn't jeopardize the species from over collecting or anything. Like we should, you should totally do that. I, I'm ha if you reach out to me, I'm happy to help you figure out a way to to get it published. If you get in touch with your local um, Department of Natural Resources biologist, they would love to help you do it. It is it will do nothing but benefit the species to have those survey methods out there. Um, if for no other reason that we can dispel the myth, because they dispel the myth that they are rare, and you can show everyone like, no, they're they're not that rare. I mean that's just as important as, as documenting that something is rare or declining. Well, it changes how agencies manage those toads. Absolutely. Uh, and they may it may not under, they may not have understood the importance of forested areas near water. It's like, oh, they breed, right. so they may be underground near the water. Well, no, they're in the forest. They're little forest toads. So now when you manage for them, you're, you've gone from managing a, a cryptic, poorly understood creature to trying to keep a, a common species locally common. Absolutely. Because uh, you have a better under, understanding of its, of its biology. So it changes the whole game uh, and, and uh, how, how they get managed, what lands get protected. Uh, what where roads get built it it means everything absolutely and like I said before if if those observations of of eye shining spadefoot live and die in your field notebook then then that doesn't change the game for anyone and um it's it's important to to get those findings out there well let's talk briefly about the their methods uh, sure. that they used. And uh, to to because if you want to bust a myth, you got to leave it in small pieces, right? Oh yeah. So you you got to bust it in a way that other scientists go, yeah, okay. So can you talk about what they did, how how they sure. the methods they used to just because they already had an I think they already had an idea that this is you know this is not how things are and how do we set up a a, a survey and a test to to change all of this. Right. Um, they did this in a few different ways. And I think if you, as a total amateur, are coming at this, I wouldn't say you have to follow this like like word for word, but, but like you said, Mike, they left this notion in pieces. Um, and so they did um, a bunch of surveys, basically, where um, they are, sorry, transect surveys, where they walk in a straight line and have multiple people counting how many uh, spadefoot toads they found. And so one of the surveys they had was um, with one person at, at the, the head of the line uh, looking out with a flashlight and um, counting eye shine. And then another person, I think like 20 meters back, like far enough back that they're not, they're not interacting with each other. Um, the other person is counting arthropod eye shine because it can be easy to confuse spadefoot from arthropods, so they want to uh, correct for that. And then behind that person, again, far enough back that they're not being disturbed, another person not looking for spadefoot eye shine, just looking for spadefoot body shape. Um, so that oh, I think was, you have it transposed. I think the, oh, first person I? Was, the first person in line was looking for body shape. Okay, thank you. Thank you. And then the second but, person is looking for arthropod eye shine. And then the third person was looking specifically for spadefoot eye shine. Thank you. Right. But the point there is that that 
is directly testing the old method, the body shape, uh, against the, the eye shine method. So that on the same stretch with the same toads, they can determine which one picked up more, uh, more species. Um, and then also make sure that they're not mistaking spadefoot eye shine for, uh, for arthropods. Well, I think that's interesting too, because that sounds like an, an argument that happened outside the paper. Yeah. Um, like, so, well, maybe we don't find them because we confuse spadefoot eye shine with, you know, spider eye shine or whatever, you know, whatever insects or, or arthropods are, are shining back. Maybe that's, right. you know, and so would they have to sort of test out to show that, uh, and they showed, I mean, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but they showed in, uh, no small way that uh, with a very s- small bit of experience that people can go spider, spider, baitfoot. So they can they just sort of very quickly differentiate between the, yeah. the two types of eye shine or multiple types of eye shine. Absolutely. And, um, and, and it was astounding. They, they noted that they saw like over 600 or more uh, up to like 1200 arthropods per survey where they were looking for spadefoot and i think like they mistook mistook a arthropod for a spadefoot like once or twice it was really once you got the hang of it it was really really easy to tell the two apart which i don't know anyone who's gone out eye shining for frogs is like yeah the first 10 minutes or so you're getting used to it but after that you can tell them apart pretty easily yeah and it was also interesting that the the person in the front who was looking just for toad shape, spadefoot shape, they only found one. Right. Yeah. It was like a terrible way to look for them. And you could <laughs> you could see like how this myth would get perpetuated. That like if that's what you're looking for, if you're just looking for spadefoot shaped rocks or blobs out in the forest floor, you're not going to find very many. Yeah. But if you look specifically for their eyes, bingo. Exactly. And they, they did ma- mention some caveats that like this really only works where the, the understory is relatively open. I think they had high levels of deer browsing in, um, in the areas. So the, the understory was, was pretty open, which makes sense, right? Like your plasticide beam has to get all the way to the eyes and reflect back to your eyes. And, but it, it just blew the old method out of the water. They used some other methods as well. Other, uh, transects and even uh, radio telemetry to kind of standardize how the the detection probabilities, which is just a fancy word of figuring out how common the spadefoot toads actually are, and then testing their methods against what they predict the um, the density or commonness of spadefoots are in the area. And so by marking and recapturing individuals. And essentially putting a, a, a radio or a, um, I think it was actually a pit tag, not a radio tag, not radio telemetry, but um, they were a transponder. Yes, it was not a transponder. Correct. And um, they were able, they were like, we know how many spadefoot are in this area. Let's use eyeshine to um, figure out, to estimate them instead of the relatively expensive mark recapture studies. And yeah, they were able to um, have similar results of, of the mark recapture study, similar estimates of occupancy and, um, and of density. 
as the mark recapture studies detection probabilities. That was the word that I was looking for. So it, I, I I like the thoroughness of this because it doesn't. It's not just being thorough to change to to bust the myth. It is also to tie it up in a neat little package and a bow and give it to anyone who has to do conservation work on spadefoots. Here you right. go. And and here, you know, not only do we change how we do this, but we're giving you some tools to move forward and some information to move forward with your own conservation effort. Right. And uh, maybe the other people will start looking at other species, like we mentioned, and maybe... Maybe this works for other types of anurans as well, and yeah. caudates and whatever else. So exactly, so, um, yeah. You don't have to spend tons of money to get pit tags and a pit tag reader and and do all this. Like you can just jump straight to the iShine survey, at least for Eastern Spadefoot, and use that to to estimate occupancy and and detection probabilities and all of that. Yeah, I guess it's also worth mentioning too. It's like the person who was doing uh, the uh, the folks that were doing the eye shine uh detection also capture they captured the toads they they right. they did take data from the toads and release them but it wasn't like uh they're just like going from toad to toad oh yeah there's a toad there's a toad they're actually confirming that it was a toad by getting it in hand and then they also right. took the opportunity to take data on those toads so um definitely not not a wasted opportunity yeah and and I guess the other thing that's cool is they repeated this in Rhode Island, which is pretty much the northern extent of the, the toads range. And that is a place where there are species of conservation concern. Um, and then down kind of at the core of their range in coastal Virginia and um, and showed that the methods work equally well in those two areas, like different um, parts of, of the northeast and of the coastal plain and uh yeah, despite those differences in habitat and even commonness of the toad locally, it, the the methods worked just as well. Very cool. Yeah. So now I know uh, a lot more about at least the eastern spadefoot. Exactly, and all of you, all of you herpers in the southeast to northeast, you should no longer be saying like, "Oh, I can't find any other spadefoot." You have a method; it is tried and true. And we should hopefully get lots more data about them uh, from everyone. Yeah. And this is the kind of paper that ends up being cited uh, by other papers for many years, right? Here's hoping. The de facto paper for uh, anytime anybody does any kind of spadefoot research, they have to refer to this paper and, and the methods outlined in this paper. I hope so, yeah. <laughs> and we know that spadefeet are, are not cicada-like. <laughs> you know they're probably exactly. out there most nights. You know, exactly. unless it's might be out there degrees. Right. Yeah. Right. That that's a good feeling, and, and perhaps we'll uh, maybe these these techniques can be applied. You know, perhaps they're not quite the the secluded. The western species aren't quite as secluded or reclusive. Or what's the word? Reclusive. Perhaps they're yeah. not quite the the uh, spend as much time underground as we think they do. Too. They may be coming out uh, many more nights. I was thinking about that, too, that like sometimes there are humid nights in the desert where it doesn't rain and maybe they are coming up for a little bit. But, um, I yeah, the deserts and the, the eastern forests are, are very different ecosystems. I Like toads out here really aren't starved for moisture or humidity 
like they are in in the desert. Um, but who the heck knows? Like if again, if you only study them at their uh, when they're breeding, then we haven't really confirmed that you can't find them outside of that. I don't know. Very good. We'll classify this one as you know the the, the old. Shakespeare line, nothing new under the sun. There's always something new under the sun or under the moon. You know, yeah. That yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So, well, I will, what I'll do is I'll post links to both of these papers. They're both available to first scrutiny and, and I'll post uh, some of the uh, cool uh, images that, that go with them to, to explain things. So I'll post those uh, in the show notes for this episode. So one of the things that when, when I started seriously started getting into amphibians and reptiles on a deeper level. And we're going back a quarter century now. But when I started doing, I started looking at these papers. Of course, the internet made things a lot easier to to find a paper and read it. And, you know, man, at first, I didn't understand anything. Uh, I still don't understand a lot, but I'm getting better at, at you know, figuring out what's going on in some in some of these papers, and the, these these natural history ones, of course, are much more accessible to to my brain. You know, in terms of what I can understand and what I, of course, I can always message my my friend Dr. Alex Crone and say, "Hey, what what's going on here?" Um, but not everybody has that, so I, I, I just kind of want to encourage people to not not be so uh, don't be daunted by scientific publications. You can still pull some information out of them, Definitely. and uh, maybe ask some questions. And of course, you can. Uh, uh, there's plenty of places on uh, social media now where you can actually talk to other her- to uh, real herpetologists and real scientists and ask them these questions. And I uh, uh, can't think of any I know that wouldn't be happy to to uh, give you an answer. I I totally agree with you, Mike. And yeah, it, it's the same thing for everyone. Everyone starts out having a really difficult time understanding and being able to read all these papers. Um, and it, it's just something. It's just a skill that you. Uh, hone like the first time you go road cruising it's hard to pick up those little cantilla or ringnecks like going across the road um but you get better at it and and you keep practicing because you learn a lot from from these papers and uh one little kind of pro tip every one of these papers if you can actually get the pdf version they have a contact email for the author there in the paper and Yes. These authors love to know that people are reading their paper. And so it's hard to not feel this way, but you really shouldn't feel ashamed to just email them. And they, even if you don't have a degree in anything, they would love to hear that you're reading their paper and that you have a question about it. Even if it's something as simple as like, I don't understand what you mean when you say this, they would love to hear from you and they'll get back to you and it it will make their day. So don't hesitate to reach out. If you have questions on social media to, to one of us or to the authors themselves. Very good. So we're knocking down a number of biases here. Right on. Yeah. <laughs> this conversation. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we're about at the end of our time. And I want to thank you, Alex, for uh, coming on the, sh- on the show and, and putting together this, what we call the Herp Science Sunday and we'll do these on a, a semi-regular, a regular basis whenever you've got something cool you want to talk about or I've I come up with a paper. And so hopefully we'll uh, keep rolling these out and having these conversations. And uh, I, I look forward to it. Just the fact that I can sit here on a Sunday morning and drink coffee and talk herps with the likes of you 
uh, <laughs> is uh, is uh, and it gets recorded, so that's a bonus. But uh, just the fact that we got to sit down and talk about it uh, is pretty cool. So. It's been a pleasure. It's been a lot of fun, and I'm I'm happy to do this as well. And if any of your listeners have papers that that they get really excited about, or they think um, the so much Pingle audience would be uh, would would want to to learn more about or hear about, um, they should they should feel free to submit them as well. We can we can talk about them on the air. It's, yeah. it's fun. It's a pleasure, and yeah, it gets those gears turning. It's good. All right. Well, I, I'm gonna cut you loose. Uh, I got a I smoked a brisket and a and also a pork butt yesterday. <laughs> they have people coming over, and cool. so I have a pork I have a pork butt to pull apart. Uh, so we make pulled pork with that, and uh, I, I actually don't eat as much meat as I used to. You know, I'm down to you know a much lower level, but uh, it it is the Fourth of July holiday, and people are coming over, and uh, yep. So we're gonna we're going to do that. So I've got uh, a full day ahead of me. Awesome. And, uh, Happy fourth, Mike. And uh, hopefully you have a good holiday as well. And, uh, yep. We've got a barbecue planned and, uh, it'll be a, it'll be a good fourth of July. All right. Well, say hello to Allie for me and pet the dog for me. Will do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> good talking to you, All Mike. Right. And, and happy fourth. All right. Thank you, my friend. Hey there, me again. I hope you enjoyed the first Herp Science Sunday feature, and I can tell you it was a blast for me to talk Herp stuff with Alex. Uh, I need to add this little afterward because while I was editing the segment, I realized that I completely forgot to bring up fossil beaver burrows. Uh, I mean, I made a note about it, and then I skipped right over that part for some reason. I guess I didn't have enough coffee. But anyway, a few months ago, before I even knew about the Varanus Spiral Burrow paper, I chanced upon a photo of what you would call a fossil cast, which was made by an extinct genus of beavers. And this cast is of a spiral-shaped burrow. And now, I'm not sure how these casts get formed, but I suspect that the burrows, you know, eventually they fill in and they get packed with perhaps a harder, denser material. And then much time passes and then when the surrounding substrate is worn away, it reveals, it exposes the spiral shape. So I, I found a cool Wikipedia page that highlights these beavers, and it just gets better and better. So these extinct beavers are in the genus Paleocastor, and they lived in parts of North America during the late Oligocene into the early Miocene period, so 20, 25 million years ago, give or take. Uh, and these fossil casts made by the beavers show up in Nebraska, and of course the locals call them devil's corkscrews. And for a long time, nobody knew what the heck they were uh, and, until some scientists figured it out. Uh, and some of these spiral casts were up to three meters in length. Sound familiar? Uh, and I was struck by a sentence in the last paragraph of the Wikipedia entry, and it says, recent research into why paleocastor would have made helico burrows suggest that it was a way to maintain a more consistent temperature and humidity level as it got warmer and drier in the early Miocene. So, I mean, pretty cool, right? What's the most efficient way to use air as an insulator underground? Maybe by containing it in a spiral-shaped burrow. Who knows? Anyway, for more text and photos on this cool... Fossil Beaver Spiral Burrow Story, 
see the Wikipedia page for Paleocastor, and I will add a link to it in the show notes. Uh, the page also links to a few research papers on the beavers and the burrows, and uh, I, I put those aside for a rainy day. I just think it's interesting how you start off with one paper or one idea, and then you end up going down uh, the proverbial rabbit hole. And in this case, the rabbit hole probably has a a spiral-shaped tunnel in the middle of it. But anyway, thanks for listening to the show. Hey, it's me again. Uh, I almost forgot. I have links to these two papers in the show notes, but uh, not everyone will be able to access them easily. So if you can't access the papers... Contact me at so muchpingle at gmail.com and I will get a copy to you. Uh, I mean, generally you can go to the site and read the paper's abstract, but quite often the new stuff is behind a journal paywall and you need some sort of academic affiliation to download the entire paper without subscribing to the journal or to the publication service, uh, which uh, kind of makes it a brain wall as well as a paywall and is probably something Alex and I should discuss on a future episode of Herb Science Sunday. Uh, But anyway, feel free to contact me and uh, cheers. That's it for episode 42 and the first Herp Science Sunday segment. I hope you all enjoyed the show and thanks once again to Dr. Alex Crone. Alex, I had a great time talking with you as always. And once again, I want to thank Moses Michelson and all of my Patreon supporters who helped to keep the lights on and the show moving forward. And if you would like to contribute a few bucks, you can visit patreon.com slash so much pingle and so much pingle is all one word. Now, before I go, I want to remind you that you can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at so much And you can also join the so much pingle Facebook group to follow the show and interact with me and some of my guests and other cool herbsters. And of course, you can contact me directly at so muchpingle at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. And until we meet again, please take good care of yourselves and don't forget to herb better.